guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Fun episode for you guys today, as That's you may right. have noticed. That intro sounded a little bit intro different. intro sounded a little bit different, so I think we've got something going on. What have we got going on, Jake? Yeah, you might have uh, remembered last week's episode. We touched on what were, in my opinion, some of the best barn finds of all time. Top on my list was the very first Shelby Daytona prototype ever built, and I thought it was a car that deserves its own story, so that's exactly what we're going to do today. Now, this is... American royalty. As it you, really is. As you said, this is one of the only cars. Is it the only car to be entered in the national? Uh, it's basically yes. the natural history register or whatever. Exactly. Alongside the Statue of Liberty. And I forget what else. Like, like the crazy Bet- monuments. Like the, the Betsy Ross flag. That kind yes, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it definitely warrants a full story. And with it, we're, of course, going to touch on a lot of the history of Carroll Shelby himself, where he came from, and how he got to this point. I hope everybody kind of appreciates that we diverge away from this doing the same thing every week. I think as car guys, we should all try and take in as much culture as we can. And it helps give you like a well-rounded foundation for which to uh, emote your your carness as your your carness. Is that a word? Can we imagine that? Deep for how stupid it sounded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually it was. All right, before we get into it, what have you got? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing, tools. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest in the industry, and send it right there to your doorstep. There's actually two different levels of the... The fuck's wrong with you? Are you drunk? No, I think I'm really amped. You're amped. Okay, well, amp yourself to this. Let's go. Each month, Petrobox gives you a certain amount of things in this no, box. Quiet, it's so pretty can, cool stuff. I know. It can be detail equipment quiet. and shirts, air fresheners, tools. It can be all kinds of crazy stuff. So head over to Petrobox.com slash Overcrest. I don't really know what it is. Put a coupon code in and get some cool <laughs> shit. It's like 20 bucks, 50 bucks, somewhere in there. I don't know. Order it up. Let's go. Let's That's go. The ad? That's the ad we're going with? I <laughs> Should we? I kind of want to. All right, now. let's go. Let's All go. All right. Yes, Petrol Box. It's at mypetrolbox.com. The code is Overcrest. All right. Here we With go. That craziness. Well, no, we're setting the stage. <laughs> Jeez. All right. So I hardly need to tell you, Chris, who Carol Shelby is. But as with most of these stories, it's best to start at the beginning. Shelby was born in 1923 in good old Texas. Shelby was said to have first honed his driving skills while racing through the small towns in his old willies on his way to school all the way in Dallas. He graduated high school in 1940 and was enrolled at the Georgia Institute of Technology to study aeronautical engineering. However, as soon as World War II broke out, Shelby enlisted before the draft came out and he was in the United States Army Air Corps where he served as a flight instructor and test pilot flying planes. So you're saying that he didn't say, I have flat feet, I'm out? He did not do that. Yes, he did the opposite. Yeah, great. So the planes that he was testing was the AT-11 Kensan, which I don't know what that is, and also the Curtis AT-9, 
I don't know what that is either, but it was known as the 89 Jeep. Now, you may recall on our Jeep history episode that the term Jeep was used all over the place in the military at the time as a term for something new, green, or like a noob. So this was a noob. This was, yeah. a, this was a Jeep plane. It was a noob plane. <laughs> Basically, okay. which is probably not what you want to be flying. Regardless, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant and went on to fly the B-18, B-25, A-26, and finally the B-29, all in Denver before being discharged following VJ Day. VJ was the Japanese. Oh, okay, that's the liberation. Day. Okay, yeah, Correct. yeah, yeah. So after the war, Shelby went on to try his hand at several different ventures. Uh, I tried business uh, in five or six different faucets. Uh, I never found anything that was fast enough for me. I, to sit and grind out a living, uh, running a ready-mixed concrete plant, which I did, which running uh, uh, a bunch of trucks, which I did. Uh, I tried a lot of things. That's right. So he started with his own dump truck business, which apparently didn't go well. He then worked briefly as an oil well roughneck from 1948 to Have 49. you ever seen the videos of roughnecks doing their job? So I had to look up if this was just a slang term. That's literally what they're That's, called. Yeah, but have you seen them like whipping the, the chains around and it's pulling the... It's nuts. You it talk is about unbelievable. These guys... Does, back-breaking Does Carol Shelby labor. have all of his fingers? Because most of these guys do not. Probably. I mean, it is yeah. serious. Well, he did that for, what, two years, from 48 to 49, before giving that up, and then finally trying his hand as a poultry farmer until that went bankrupt. So they always kind of joke of Carol Shelby as the little chicken farmer from Texas. Yeah. Right? Not little, he's a big guy. Yep. But that's where that came from. A few years later, Shelby raced his friend Ed Wilkins' MGTC at the Grand Prairie Naval Air Station drag meetup, followed by other races borrowing other cars from friends. As he kept winning in these amateur races, people began to notice. That's how he found himself sponsored by the Sports Car Club of America to drive in the 1954 Mil Kilometros, or 1,000 miles, kilometers, not miles, but down in Buenos Aires, Argentina. So he finished a respectable 10th place in the endurance race. But the real achievement is what happened next. I'm guessing, honestly, I'm guessing some of these races, these 1,000-mile things in Argentina in the 50s, just or 60s, is finishing is pretty much... True. That is <laughs> I mean, that's an accomplishment, accomplishment in itself. For sure. But what really propelled his career next was Aston Martin's factory team was present at this race. And their team manager, John Wire, took notice of Shelby. And I got lucky with this break meeting John Wire. And the reason I say that it's lucky, uh, uh, I really mean that because at that time, the European... The, the English manufacturers, Porsche was just getting started. Uh, they had a little sport car with a Volkswagen engine, which wasn't very good, the first <laughs> ones. They wouldn't appreciate me saying that because I drove for them later. And I, very Porsche turned out to be a good friend. Von Hanstein was one of the dearest friends I ever had. Uh, but... They were all trying to sell their cars in America. And what they needed was some exposure over here. And the best way to get exposure, if there was an American that was good enough to drive them, uh, then it was to their advantage to hire America. Right. So Wire, the team manager for Aston Martin, asked Shelby to drive for Aston Martin. And he drove their DBR3 at the Sebring 12 hours. 
And unfortunately, he's not finished at the 12-hour race after being rear-ended in a minor crash. But that didn't stop him driving for Aston Martin. That same year, he traveled to Europe, where he finally raced at Le Mans, but dropped out of competition. And what did he? What was he driving? He was driving that same DBR. Okay, the DBR. Okay. Yep. And he dropped out of competition in the eleventh hour due to a front axle failure. Which, come on, Aston Martin, bring another axle. Yeah. What the heck? I mean, well, the thing is, is if you can't make it back to the pits and you have to be towed. It's, you're done. Oh, is that what the rule is? Yeah. I if, didn't know if that. If you have to be towed back, I think it's all over for you. Mm. So I'm surprised a lot of these cars aren't just weighed down by spare parts. <laughs> they can like bolt on on the side of the track. Well, that's why in some of the Targas, you're required to have a spare tire. Sure. And guys, like if you look at under some of the 917s in the back, yeah. you can see there's a spare tire back there. Because you can change your own tire. Wow. You and think you, about I, it. I see those photos. That's well, nuts. Think about it being like tens of miles away from a town or something like that in the middle of Italy or whatever, you right. need to change a tire. Well, you do it yourself. You pull over on the side of the road and you're in your 917 or your whatever, and you change a tire. That's nuts. So Shelby was severely injured in a crash while racing in Austin Healy in the Carrera Pan America. He underwent eight grueling months of operations and recovery, but continued to race again in 1955, winning 10 races outright and a second place showing at the 12 hours of Sebring, this time driving a Ferrari Monza. He continued to race around the world and win. He set records on various hill climb events and was named Sports Illustrated Driver of the Year for two consecutive years in 1956 and 57. First of all, I didn't know Sports Illustrated named a driver. Yeah, I didn't think that. I thought they were more like, uh, this is the tennis player of the year type of situation. And swimwear. Big, big <laughs> fan of the swimwear they do. Well, I used to be. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, I don't know if anyone had ever been named twice in a row. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Then in June of 1959, he co-drove another Aston Martin, the DBR1, to victory in the 1959 24 Hours of Le Mans. According to Shelby, quote, winning the 24 Hours was probably the greatest thrill I ever got out of racing. You know, what's interesting is I didn't, as much as I've ever heard about Carroll Shelby, and I knew that he did things, I didn't know he won at Le Mans. I, didn't I had either. no idea. Yeah, he said, I can think of plenty of other races that carry their quota of thrills for the winner. But when you win this one, it kind of gives you license to go out there and tell people you're good. And that often helps in some other deals in putting them together. I bet it does. Yeah, you see... Like, hey, do you want to go crush Ferrari? Hey, I, 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 I raced that race. I won yeah, it. I won. I'm the, so, I'm the guy. Right, because even though Shelby was an extremely successful driver at this time, he still had his sights set on something bigger. Well, let's be clear. As a driver, he doesn't have any money. True. Right? I mean, you're not making, you're not raking in the cash. Especially not back at this day and age. No, absolutely not. It's not like it is today where professional drivers make a decent amount of money if you're good. You go to Win Le Mans and you're getting sponsors, you're making good money these days. Back then, right. it's like, yeah, I'm just going to have beans again. I well, mean, there's, not, there's <laughs> not a lot of money. No, there isn't. And even today, I mean, yes, they can make, you know, like millions, but compare that as a percentage of what the entire race budget is for that manufacturer. Right. A lot of it is sponsorships and stuff like that. Yeah, I suppose. And I don't Free think, Gatorade for life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there was a lot of sponsorships back then other than, I mean, maybe some tires or, or something like that. But it's not like Red Bull and Monster Energy were throwing dollars in 1969. That's just it. And TV wasn't really covering these races no, no. either. Shelby says, the longer I went on racing and was around the limited production factories in Europe, the more I realized that America was missing a big bet, a winning bet. That winning bet I'm talking about was the design and production of an all-purpose, 
all-American sports or grand touring car that you drive to the market and also race during the weekend. Now, part of the reason Shelby was looking to move on from racing was a secret that he kind of kept to himself. Since childhood, Carol had been afflicted with heart conditions. While he battled through it for so many years in racing, he knew sooner or later that it would catch up to him. I had a lot of heart problems. I was driving race cars with nitroglycerin pills. And when I, I never intended, I never set a time schedule to quit, but I was in the last race, and I remember at Laguna Seca in, uh, up in Monterey in 1960, the last race of the season, and I had to finish third to win a national championship. And when I took that fifth nitroglycerin pill and had to slow up for a couple of laps, I said, uh, why don't I just quit and get on with it? What's interesting is if you have to take nitroglycerin pills, it's because your heart is racing, right? right? And you always imagine uh, guys that these stone-cold dudes, right? right? They're the stone-cold killers. They've just got the million-mile stairs. They're in the race car doing, no, man. This dude has won at Le Mans. He's an accomplished racer. Dude's adrenaline is still pumping. Oh, he loves sure. it. He's into it. His heart is pumping. He's he's gonna get this victory and get the world champion or the national championship or whatever it is. Got to pop my mom on my fifth pill. Boy, I'm gonna kill myself for this. I need to quit or I'm gonna die. Exactly. I mean, he got to that point where he was like, "I'm gonna die. I yeah. have to stop." And before that, he was probably gonna die as well. But he finally just reached the point where he had to, you know, move on. And he obviously had kind of accomplished at such a high level. Right. And so on this interview, I didn't really include it. It wasn't totally paramount to the story, but he made an interesting point of nowadays, like if an even mediocre driver quits a sport, it's all this coverage about, oh, why is he leaving everything else? He goes, it wasn't like that back in the day. I just didn't go to the next race and no one really cared. It's, it's crazy. Well, nobody tagged him on Instagram. Like, hey, <laughs> hashtag Carol Shelby. Hashtag, where are you? Hashtag, loser. <laughs> hashtag, quitter. You know, Ooh, just- <laughs> yeah. I do wonder if he has this, like, secret stash of nitroglycerin. <laughs> Whatever okay. the other thing was. This whole stash of them, is he, like, putting one in the carburetor, putting one for myself, putting another one in the <laughs> gas tank, a little extra power maybe, I don't know. So Shelby, having quit racing, I should say retired from racing, set his sights on creating an American car that could best the Europeans at their own game and on their own turf at Le Mans. With his time driving for Aston Martin, he developed an affinity for the way British cars handled. The only thing they lacked, he figured, was good old-fashioned American muscle. Shelby called up AC cars in Thames, asking how feasible it would be to stuff a V8 into their independently suspended, ladder-framed AC Ace. The small Ace you see, it's a roadster that had already been using a pre-war-designed straight six. I saw, uh, back in the early 50s, they were sending these cars over from England outside the Jaguar. Uh, they built their own engine, but they were sending thousands of these cars over with 1918 model London taxi engines in them. Uh, the MGTC, the MGTD, the MG, the, you know, they kept on the MGA. They still put that same old engine in there and right in that same hole, you could stick a, uh, uh, American V8 that pulled 300 horsepower. So all you had to do was jack around with the chassis a little bit. The hot rodders had been doing it out here for for 30 years. And uh, it looked to me like a golden opportunity. 
a golden opportunity to be the first guy to do LS swaps, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody that's complaining about the dudes putting LS swaps and Miatas, this is your man. This yeah, is your man to blame. But as we'll find, the LS was Chevy. Carol was a Ford man. Yeah, he was. He was. I'm just saying <laughs> the, the, the small box swap well, starts here. It's such a Texas like mindset. Like, yeah, you just take this. You throw a V8 in it. You jack it you jack around it a little around, bit. And we're good to go, right? <laughs> Bigger's well, better, right? Yeah, for sure. As both fate and luck would have you it. You know what? I wish I was the kind of man that could have a car that would have horns on the front. Oh, I think you should. I th- Hold on. No, hold on. <laughs> no, hold on. I am not on putting our horns. Last episode, we talked about how we were going to give each other four grand to buy each other our next winter beater. You have more money than me. I think I should have a two grand budget for you. Well, I'm going to spend two grand on horns and the other two grand <laughs> on a truck to mount them on. You're going to have to basically tow it to my house and drop it off with the two grand with the horns. No motor. It's got the horns on there. these long I'm horns, just thinking maybe. about te- like the Texas, like the. I couldn't pull it off, right? I'd be an instant poser. I'll get you a hat. That's even worse. So I'd be like a a, a very regular sized skinny white dude with I feel like you have to be a weathered man. You have to have leathery skin. I'll get you a pack you of know. Marlboros and some boots. You'll be good to go. Don't worry. Well, give about me about it. twenty years to get my to destroy my skin and uh and learn how to rope at cow and then we'll, we'll be good to go. All right. Well back to Shelby and these AC aces. So as luck would have it, the bulk of the chassis mods needed to actually put one of these massive V8s in it had been done. Because they had already said, well, these engines we have in these old cars are so old, we need to update it. And so they took a modern Ford inline six and put it in the ACAs. This basically allowed for the V8 to just fit in the same space. All Shelby needed now was an engine. So he first turned to Chevy. He wanted that LS. Well, it wasn't an LS at the time, but he wanted... What would have been like an LT? It was the... I don't See, I don't know that far back. I think it's, it's just, like an LT2 or something like that. It's a 350, yeah. right? Yeah. So he wanted... Uh, I think it's an LT2 or an LT1. You, you might be LT1? right. LT1? Because that's what I had in my boat. Yeah. Oh. I had the LT1 with the Corvette flags yep. on the... Yeah. Exactly. I think that's so the he one. wanted that. But their new Corvette was already making waves, and they couldn't have another sports car threatening its supremacy with mm-hmm. the same engine. So Shelby then contacted Ford's Lee Iacocca. Now, at first, Iacocca was said to be a little more than amused by the big Texan, who always came to his office, quote, with a big hat on his head and a beautiful blonde by his side. It's the way to do it. See, that's all you need, Chris, the hat and the blonde. Hat and the blonde, then I can have the thing. I'll talk to my wife about dyeing her hair. Yeah, I was going to say, didn't she just dye it dark? (laughs) Yeah, she did. (laughs) I just want the big Cadillac with the huge doors and the and the bench seat and the and the I want to do I I will do a road trip with one of those someday, like the Great American Road Trip. I think maybe we got to go down to Texas. Maybe you and I should do this. Maybe we should fly to um, maybe not Texas because I want to drive across. Maybe we could fly to Florida or down south somewhere and just drive across the southern Ooh, the southern United States and go to, you know, end up in San Diego or something like that in in a big Cadillac with, you know, the big bench seats. And I think it'd be great. I like that idea. So it took some time, but I have a blonde, put a blonde in the back seat and the blonde, just rent one. It's possible, right? Well, Nevada, you can. <laughs> I didn't say what for seeking two two males seeking blonde female for for companionship and camaraderie for at least six or seven days must be able to change a tire. <laughs> I feel like the replies would be very slim on that posting. 
So it took some time, but we I should try it just to see what kind of feedback we get. Yeah, go for Make it. Make the ad. Make it. All right. All right. All right. We'll circle back to that. All right. To the story, Chris. Focus. I so- can't. <laughs> I just want the horns. I just want the horns on the car. Can we get small horns for my, can we, what would fit oh, on my on truck? The caddy? Yeah, small horns? I don't know. I probably have like some whitetail horns in my dad's garage. That no, are- then it's going to look like a jackalope. <laughs> I don't want that. And I should have said uh, antlers, not horns. Yes. Antlers are annual, Chris. Yes, Jake. All right. Back to the story at hand. So Lee Iacocca finally realized that Shelby was actually serious about this. And he was interested in a way to squash Chevy's aforementioned Corvette, right? This was, after all, years before Ford would think up the Mustang. Not that that would have stood up to the vet anyways. So it wouldn't have been, if this was back then, there, it wouldn't have been the LT1 because that's early 70s, okay. I believe. So we're, yep. we're something else at this we're point. We're before that. So as it happened, Ford had just developed a lightweight, thin-walled V8 for use in their Canadian pickup market. This engine was first built in Windsor, Ontario, appropriately becoming known as, as the, Windsor, the Windsor V8. Yeah. That's right. It didn't take long for Shelby to get a 4.2 liter high output version of the engine bolted into one of the AC Roadsters. Good sounds, yeah. yeah. I can go with that. Yeah. I had a Windsor in one of my boats. Did you? Then Chris Graff, he had a Windsor, yeah, yeah. I had. It was not fast. No, it was, it was not whatever that sounded like. I had a '77 Ford pickup that had. It was either the Windsor or the Cleveland. Yeah, I've never. Because they a named them after the plants they were built yep. in. It was some 351. I think it was the Cleveland then. Regardless, on the first test drive, with all that torque of that V8, it promptly snapped the rear axle off. Oh. A stouter rear end was then lifted from... And this is in that AC? Yep, ACAs. So they took a stouter rear end from a Jaguar E-Type and bolted that in. The problem was the E-Type had inboard brakes sure. nestled right up to the differential. When put to use on Shelby's Roadster, the heat from the inboard brakes melted the car's oil seals so that they were scrapped and traditional disc brakes were then fitted instead. Another problem soon I just, cropped up. We can we run through this like, oh yeah, they did this. Hey, they did you that. do that. You, you do, do that. This. this was a lot of work. Yeah. Like, okay, we're gonna put this new rear end in here. Well, that first doesn't you just... have to think, okay, what can we use that could stand up to the torque? They have to go through all this. They don't okay. want to build one themselves. Right. So they're just like, okay, how about Jaguar? Okay, cool. Put it in. Oh, f- <laughs> these stupid brakes are. Well, let's run it and see what happens. Yeah. And they, it's, it's they just, probably thought it was a cool idea, like inbound. Well, yeah, unsprung less, weight. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Except, oops, we got it too hot. Yeah. So while the rear axles could now handle the torque, the suspension couldn't. The leaf springs, which were basically longitudinal, like yep. you think of a normal leaf spring in a truck, yep. they would simply twist under acceleration. So you're not putting down that power. This is why a lot of, this is a side note, but a lot of like the Camaro or any of the like uh, muscle car guys, they have what's called anti-tramp bars. It's basically another bar that'll bottom out before the leaf spring twists on itself. Well, Carol wanted this car to actually go around a corner and not just down a drag strip, so that's out. So what they did instead was they put the leaf springs transversely, which basically means side to side. Perpendicular versus... Right. And so think of it, you have independent rear suspension, and so now you just have the leaf springs going out to each pickup point. I think a torsion bar is probably better 
and that I then just switching it over to transverse leaf springs. You think why not just use a torsion bar or something like that? Just uh, seems like that these would, still, I guess, would take up less room because now you just have you like, don't have a tube or anything out. like exactly. That. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. These, along with wider wishbones up front, forced the AC to widen the body by radically flaring the fenders. Yeah, that's what I'm all about. It deserves a Jake, yeah. (laughs) Anyhow, put some flares on that thing. The results were earth-shattering. So what they did is they actually just took fiberglass flares and just used body screws and just screwed them on and put caulking and then took a little sawzall and went... Yeah, how'd you know? And then they just glued them on and smoked a lot of of cigarettes and just bolted them on. Not quite. No, no, it's not no, what they did. No. These are oh. actually aluminum flare oh, fenders. Okay, so they're metal done, flares. Done Got properly. it. Got Correct. it. All right, so tuned within an inch of its life, the high-output V8 in the now-named Shelby Ford AC Cobra made 325 horsepower and accelerated to 60 miles per hour in a then-unheard-of 4.2 seconds. That's still fast. That is, that is still very fast. fast. It's way faster than my truck. Um, the Do we know what the, the where Cobra came from? What the... Why they, the vernacular Cobra was used to, on these cars? Why, why are they called a Cobra? Obviously, a Cobra is like a badass thing that if it stings you, you're dead, right? I mean, you don't want to get stung by a Cobra. You don't want a Cobra. They're fast, right? They they reach out, and then they sink their teeth into you. And, and they you get the, the weird, like, winged head. Yeah, and they can yeah. kind of dance a little bit. Why were they called a Cobra? I don't know if I believe this or not, but what I found is that, quote, during a dream, he came up with the name for his car, the Cobra. A dream of what? He was getting chased by snakes? I don't know. That's all it says. <laughs> oh, all right. I, yeah. Okay. So maybe. The first production cars, known as the Mark 1s, were detuned quite a bit and also featured shoddy steering due to the fact that they just used a worm gear setup and column lifted straight from a Volkswagen bug. Not to mention massive cooling problems. Shelby fixed all this by equipping the Mark II Cobra with a 289-cubic-inch engine, revised gearing, proper rack and pinion steering, and a massive grill opening with side vents to let the heat out of the engine bay. Keep in mind, before this, the Cobra still used the more or less stock AC Ace front end with right. the smaller opening. So yep. you can tell the Mark I versus the Mark II Cobra if it still looks like a European car, that's a Mark I. If it looks like this crazy hot rod with a big mouth on it, sure. that's the Mark II. You know what is kind of a pity is... When you see these out driving around, 99.999% of the time, it's a kid It's car. a replica. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, oh man, yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. With these updates making up the Mark II Cobra, it was time to go racing. Shelby's little roadster dominated American tracks. In 1963, two Cobras finished first and second well ahead of their Corvette Stingray Challengers at Riverside. Now, it's not outlandish to say that if there was a race in the lower 48 states of America in 1963 and 64, a Cobra was the winner, including the 12 hours of Sebring. However, things were not so rosy across the pond. Shelby entered a couple... This just goes to show that weight is king. Yeah. Weight is king. If you can reduce the weight on something... That's really what it's all about. You can increase power, too. But what really made these things special is the big motor in the light car. Yep, little car. So Shelby entered a couple of Cobras in the GT class at the 1963 Le Mans. The best the Cobras could muster was seventh place. Meanwhile, first through sixth all went to Ferrari. You see, these European circuits were punctuated with longer straights and therefore higher top speeds. On the shorter American circuits, the Cobra was unbeatable 
They were faster than the competition, including the Ferrari GTO, and handled just as well, if not better, through the corners. The real killer for the Cobra, at Le Mans at least, was the notorious three-mile Mulsanne Strait. Even with awkward-looking hardtops that they fashioned for the Cobras, they could only hit 150 miles per hour. Meanwhile, <laughs> just imagine going 150 miles an hour. Just in this little what? Oh, short oh, wheelbase. Oh my goodness! Meanwhile, these Ferraris were all able to achieve 180 or better. Oh wow, that's a huge difference. Yeah, they would lead the pack for most of the lap until they got to the straight. Bob Bondurant had this to say: "Quote: Every time I'd see a red car coming up, I'd think, oh shit." Now they're going to go by us. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just what would happen. Yeah. You know what, though, Chris? Those red cars or a Cobra could look pretty good thanks to our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Yeah, just polish <laughs> them like up. Polish them there? up. You like that? No, in all seriousness, let's take a moment to talk about Oberk. They are a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that is researched, tested, and developed by professional detailers. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, holograms, and oxidation on your vehicle's paint. Right now, Oberk is offering 20% off any order online with the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OberkCarCare.com, but also on CarSuppliesWarehouse.com and DetailedImage.com. I'm going to be using this product on my on the Caddy. I want to get, I want to get it polished up and have like the rusty... Because most of it's going to be shiny. Shiny rust. Shiny <laughs> rust. No, you got the the just the chalky single-stage paint. I'm going to polish that once, and that thing's going to be like, bing! You know, those little, like... The little the flares that the come off like, like a twinkle sparklies. in your eye type of thing. Yeah, cartoon yeah. sparkly. Just like the way my wife looks at me every day. I'm sure. I wake up in the morning, walk out in my underwear, and it's like, bing! Yeah, yeah that's exactly. That's going to look imagine. amazing. Yes. So, Carol Shelby had a problem. He needed more speed. More precisely, he needed more aerodynamics. Enter Peter Brock. Brock was first exposed to professional racing when he went to his first road race at Pebble Beach, California, in 1951. All he had to do is he says, Carol Shelby, just put this crystal in your car. Wrong, Peter Brock. <laughs> Wrong, Peter what? Brock. I thought that as well. No, nope, not an Australian. Okay. I know. Okay. I know. Okay, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna admit. Right, I'm gonna admit right now that I did not know there was two Peter Brocks in racing. Um. Yeah. This Are you sure? This guy's a designer, like an engineer. Okay, so we're talking about two completely different Peter Brocks. Correct. All right. Well, maybe the crystal still would have helped. <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> could have helped. <laughs> so Brock uh, in '51 was first exposed to racing, photographing cars and drivers. Soon after, he started looking for a faster car than his old MG. Ironic that he also has a little British car. He picked up a half-complete 1946 Ford convertible on a used car lot. Half-complete, mind you, Chris. It didn't take long. What kind of half-complete car sells on the dealership on the dealership lot? Well, it's back in the fifties. Yeah. Hi. Sorry, this one doesn't have a top. We somebody ordered it. <laughs> you know, Bob over here's top came bad, so we just ripped the one off of this one. Sorry, there's no no interior, but we'll still finance it for you. Is that what we're talking about here? I doubt there was financing involved. Yeah, probably. But yeah, yeah. So it didn't take too long before Brock had completely modified the hot rod, which was then referred to as the Fordalac, due to the big block Cadillac engine Brock brought had put in the car. I love it. Upon graduating from high school, he enrolled at Stanford University, Chris, in the engineering department. He then subsequently dropped out and drove to L.A. to enroll in the Art Center College Design in Pasadena, California. When they asked for his portfolio, he had brought no drawings with him. So instead, he walked back out to his car, 
made a few sketches of Hot Rods and his car right there in the parking lot. He returned to the admissions office, presented his, quote, portfolio, and was promptly admitted. Was he, oh, hold on, I left it in my glove compartment. I'll be right back. And just, and he just sketched stuff on the spot, and they're like, this is really good. Nice. Like, you have talent. Also, that's, that's actually a pretty prestigious design school as well. Okay. Well, having come from Stanford, too, where you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I was in engineering. I don't want to do any of that. Yeah. So, smart guy, obviously. Then, at age 19, showing just how smart he is, while still attending the Art Center School, Brock became the youngest designer ever hired by General Motors' styling department. He's 19, still in school, and General Motors plucks him out. In November of 1957, Brock drew the sketch that would become the design of the next Corvette, the Corvette Stingray. Having finally turned 21 two years later, Brock was finally able to obtain his SCCA race license and left GM to return to California. Returning to California, you see, he was able to work at a shop during the day and then work on his race car at night, something he couldn't do when he was in Detroit. Shelby first met Brock on the track where Carroll offered him a job as an instructor at the Carroll Shelby School of High-Performance Driving that he had tried starting at the time. Brock soon showed more potential working behind the desk than at the track, though. Brock became responsible for the Shelby American brand itself, creating the logos, merchandise, ads, and car liveries as well. He designed the Shelby components for the Shelby Mustang GT350s and designed various other race car components for Shelby. When the Cobra has shown to be lacking in top speed... Shelby had Brock design a new solution. Now, legend has it that Brock had driver Ken Miles sit in a seat holding a steering wheel and then built the car around him using duct tape and wood. Young Brock had come across a theory by a German aerodynamicist named Cam from the 1930s. They were all the leaders in advanced aerodynamics in the late 30s when nobody else even knew anything about this. And they had written some papers and built prototypes and of course all of that stuff was destroyed in uh, World War II so very little information was left on it but slowly slowly I dug some of it out in the library at, at, at GM there were a, a series of uh, just mimeograph sheets that had somehow uh, the Allies after the war had gone through Germany for all the technical data they could find and if it was something about automobiles, well, they copied it all down and they sent it to every automobile company. And that's where I found out the, uh, the, the secret to the German aerodynamic designs. The secret to the German aerodynamic designs. Yeah, I'm telling you, the Nazi machine, it was pure evil, but their engineering department was on point. Well, yeah, because you're literally at knife point. Yeah, at all times. Yeah. Yes. So I just find it interesting, though, that when the Allies went through Germany, here they are, they're going through all these documents, and if they see something that's car-related, they just send it to all the big three. Oh, they did? Yeah, that's what he basically said. He okay. said any of the data they found in Germany, they would copy and just send to all the American manufacturers. Like, here, we don't know what this is, but maybe you can use it. Right. So the ideal shape, Chris, to minimize drag is a teardrop. However, researchers, including... Which way? Which way is the teardrop? Blunt end first. Okay. You want the tail to minimize... Sure. The drag. Drag. Yep. So, researchers, including Com... Apparently, they never saw Flight of the Navigator. 
which is a, you have no idea. You're too No, young. I do. It's Chrome, but did it fly the other way? Yeah, it flew the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, we have alien species here that's got this stuff figured out. <laughs> no, not quite. So one of the documents he came across was uh, documentation by this guy named Com. And Com found that abruptly cutting off the tail of a teardrop resulted in virtually no increase in drag. So you basically start the shape of a teardrop and cut it off. Like you don't need all the extra. Right. The reason for this is that a turbulent wake region forms in that area behind the vertical surface at the rear of the shape or the car. So that's why all the hatchbacks are always disgusting all the time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever owned a hatchback that the glass wasn't dirty after driving for five seconds? No, it doesn't exist. Five seconds later, after you just cleaned the whole thing off, on a brand new road, doesn't matter. Dusty. Yep. Just and that's why. This wake region mimics the effect of a tapered tail in that the air in the free stream does not enter this still region. Therefore, smooth airflow is maintained, which minimizes drag. So comms design is based on the tail being truncated at the point where the cross-section of the area is 50% of the car's maximum cross-section. Okay, math guy. Basically, make it a taper on the yeah, rear, yeah. and once you hit half of it, cut it off. Okay. That's all he's saying. This design became known as the camback. Brock, therefore, took the chassis of the Cobra and the duct tape and wood buck that he had created with Miles, Ken Miles. He extended the tail to a point and proceeded to simply hack the tail off. Just imagine him there with a saw. Just like, <laughs> uh-uh, uh-uh. Voila! The aerodynamically superior shape that would become known as the Shelby Daytona. Have you seen one of these, Chris? Absolutely. I think they look weird. I, I'm not particularly attracted to these cars. I like them because they're a little bit weird. Especially from where, the rear three-quarter. It's like this oval shape on the back. Yep. It just looks a you little can tell odd. It's, it like was going to be the teardrop you can, 100%, tail. 100%. You see it. And they just hacked it off. Lopped it off. Just That's like, where this came boom, from. Yep. So is that, are you more aerodynamic? Cause you've been lopped off too. Yeah, is there like, yeah, no, I'm certainly, well, only when I go head first <laughs> like this. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So Brock showed the shape to Carol Shelby and he wasn't so sure. As you said, on first appearance, they look weird, man. It looks weird. The front three quarter is great. I actually like the rear three quarter. It just, it looks a lot. It looks, and for the side profile, it's very ass heavy. Like, if you like girls that got it going on, (laughs) you're definitely a fan of the Daytona. Yeah, the Daytona has that badonkadonk. It does, for sure. (laughs) So, Shelby went as far as to bring in an aerodynamic engineer to examine Brock's shape. The engineer thought that the coupe would be better off with a full tail tapered back fully. However... Shelby had faith. Could you imagine rear-ending a guy that's got the full teardrop? Your <laughs> brakes fail, and your eyes are, <laughs> and there's just like this point just like coming at you in slow motion as your adrenaline kicks in, and it's just like piercing your windshield, and then it's going, just like in uh, in Terminator, the T-1000, his finger yeah, comes yeah, out, and it like goes right him. into there, it pokes him in the eye or whatever, yeah. that's what I imagine this thing would yeah. be like, crashing it's, it's into the it. T-1000. <laughs> <laughs> No, so the engineer also was like, this is really weird. Let's make it a full tail. But Shelby had faith in his young 22-year-old at the time designer. So basically the Ford said, that looks weird. Leave it go all the way back. No, well, Shelby hired an aircraft engineer. He's an aircraft guy. And he's like, just leave it go all the way. He goes, yeah, no, I know this is a thing, but make it just go all the way back. That would have looked awful. 
Just Agreed. I'm picturing that in my head. It would have looked just this absolutely weird, terrible. Pointy thing at the back of a cobra, basically. Not good. No. So he had faith, and Brock's design was cemented in history. The coupe was tested out in Britain, driven by Jack Sears and Peter Bolton. Peter Bolton, isn't he a singer? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> that's, that's John Bolton. No, John Bolton's the Secretary of State. <laughs> or the UN, UN representative. <laughs> I swear there's a singer called Bolton, Chris. There is. Uh, Michael. Michael, Michael. Bolton. Michael that's Bolton. the one, not yeah. Peter. That must yeah. be his brother. Michael Bolton. All right, so they hit 185 miles per hour just on the freeway in Britain, on the M1. Why not? This little stunt is what is said to have caused Britain to actually establish national speed limits. <laughs> <laughs> Then in 1964, at the 12 hours of Daytona, the coupe outran all the competition until it was hobbled by a damaged differential. A differential cooler was then added to design and installed. Still, the Cobra Coupe so totally outclassed the rest of the competition that it not only recorded the race's fastest lap, but Shelby decided to rename the car after the race, the Shelby Daytona. I love it, man. It's 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 such a, an American icon. I, you know, I look at it and I go, well, the rear window glass is a little big. I feel like they could have split, done a split window on the rear, kind of like the stink, Ooh, like the Corvettes, the sixty-seven with the, Corvettes, stingray. yeah, with the Stingray with the split window on the rear, too. or like the Beetles have some of them have the split window. The very the rear Beatles. glass is just this huge shape that doesn't really seem to come together for me. Yeah, and I think that's the Achilles heel. You know who I feel like would like this is our friend Alex Nelson. Because it's like a shooting brake almost. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. It's, I mean, it's very uncoupish with the exactly. way that the, the rear is. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So once in France, on the Mulsanne Strait, the Daytona achieved a VMAX. I love the term VMAX. V-max. I had to use that. Terminal V-max velocity. Of 196 miles per hour. <sighs> this absolutely blew the doors off the competition. The car, driven by Dan Gurney and Bob Bobdrant, finished first in the GT class, and fourth overall, beating a handful of full-blown prototype cars. In fact, in a giant middle finger to Enzo Ferrari himself, the Daytona wound up actually lapping a Ferrari GTO. Wow. Well, at this point, the GTO was getting a little long in the tooth, but still. Still, these were the cars that were beating the Cobra Roadster just a couple years ahead. Now, while the Daytona went on to dominate the 1964 and 1965 GT racing seasons, the writing was sadly already on the wall. In 1964, the year it won Le Mans, the fastest lap time was actually set by another American driving another Ford product, the Ford GT40. That's a whole nother story. It is. The next year, Henry Ford II scooped up and, well, as we know with the story, he basically employed Shelby to come over and help work on the project, yep. which took a lot of Shelby's best engineers and people, and the Cobra racing effort got his corporate funding completely chopped off. So, not to steal the GT40's thunder. So, the Daytona really got cut off the knees before it could really reach its full potential. Potentially. Yeah. But at the time, this GT40, okay, think about the budget that Shelby had. Right. Yes, it was impressive, but he basically hired this 22-year-old kid to design it and beat Ferrari. Yeah. Now, Ford is coming him and said, we have a blank check to design the craziest car you can think of. I would the just... The GT40. You just... Have you ever seen in uh, Toy Story where he's like, I don't want to play with you anymore. <laughs> exactly. And Woody, like, falls into the trash can. That's exactly, exactly what happened what here. what happened. So, the six Daytona Coupes that were built were illegally flown back to L.A. Shelby couldn't even sell them as interest had totally dissipated in the project which I can't imagine. I don't know if it's because 
there was so much hoopla about the GT40 that these seemed like old You also news. have to keep in mind that these things were also battered. Yeah, they were they were wiped out. Plus, they did a lot of their really cool stuff in Europe. Yeah, and true. Americans are like, eh, okay, Europe. I'm really a big fan of Europe. We just won a war there, and you know, my dad died there. I don't really like Europe. The Germans and the French, and the French are a bunch of wussies and blah 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 and Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't think that That's Americans in the '60s were really into Europe. Yeah. Fast forward to just a few years ago, Chris, and that's where our barn find story came in. In the locked storage shed in California was found the first Shelby Daytona ever built, chassis CSX-2287. Where are, are all of these still around, right? Every single one is, to, is accounted for? Do you know? You don't know. I don't know that off the top of my head. That's okay. The Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe, though, is a truly awesome feat of engineering and history. From the poor chicken farmer in Texas, as they call him, to absolutely dominating the world racing stage, the Shelby Daytona is perhaps, in my opinion, Carroll Shelby's most amazing creation. I, I would agree with you. I mean, it was really without that car, Ford would have never come to him exactly. for the GT40. And we wouldn't have, you know, the, the, the King Cobra. We wouldn't have any of that kind of stuff without this project and the AC project and, you know, this kind of foundation for everything that came afterwards. Exactly. All right. I want to remind everybody to uh, head over to uh, overcrestproductions.com and check out the rally information. Yes. Just a reminder that the rally registration opens August 1st, and we're going to be able to be taking uh, applications there to see if you are, uh, you and your car fit the, uh, fit the story that we're trying to tell with the driving and everything else. So, Head over to overcrestproductions.com. Check out the rally info. It's right there. You'll see a tab, and you can apply to be on the rally starting August 1st. Awesome. With that, we will talk to you guys next week. Take care, guys.